0: All right, if you take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 1, we won't spend time in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 today, but I do want to read that as our foundational passage, which it's served for the past three weeks. Just to give you a little information logistically and structurally how we'll work this morning, is a little different. Um, Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 is our foundation for this doctrine of sovereign election. But as we look to explore what it produces in us, we're going to look at several fruits and we're going to take a primary passage for that fruit, work through the context and then land on the climax that supports that fruit. That's kind of structurally how we'll work this week. Next week, we jump right back into verses 7 through 10 and what would be sort of a a normal sequential exposition of the text, which we prefer here at Miriam Christian Chapel. That said, the title of today's message, our final in this mini-series within this exposition, is Chosen by God, Part 3, if you will. I want to begin with a question. What is it that produces skill in living? That's my key phrase that I'll use several times throughout. What is it that contributes to the lack of skill in living? For most of us, I would argue it boils down to a lack of understanding when it comes to applying skill in living. Nevertheless, when we take time to learn and then apply certain skill sets in life, this often becomes a very rewarding experience. As for me, I've certainly learned certain life skills throughout life, some worth more than others, some not worth much, that said, it's definitely been rewarding and refreshing and joyful for me to learn and then apply. I want to also state, as an illustration, up front, I'm not the most mechanically inclined. My wife is actually more mechanically inclined than I am. But I've certainly enjoyed throughout life Learning about car maintenance, sorry, Darl or Jeff, <laughs> understanding how to change my own oil or replace my pads and my rotors and a number of other things has certainly been rewarding, not to mention saving money. Once again, sorry for my mechanics or owners of mechanic shops in the room. That said, I'm sure all of us in some respects have an example that they could share where they've learned and gained insights and then applied it, which is then in turn contributed to rewarding skill and living. Life from a natural perspective is about learning and understanding and growing. We're not meant to just be people of understanding. We're designed to be people of action. Even as James states, faith without works is dead, is it not? We desire to be people of action. From a biblical perspective, the Hebrew concept of wisdom is exactly that. That is, skill in living. The application of of understanding in proverbs 16:22 wisdom is described as such understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it it's sort of refreshing so to speak it is life empowering it is a fountain of life Understanding, wisdom, skill in living. Now, minus the occasional oil splash, that doesn't happen as much anymore. I can truly say the understanding and application of changing my oil has been rewarding, refreshing, be that as it may. There are more important things in life than changing our oil. For the last two weeks, we've unpacked the biblical doctrine of sovereign election. Nonetheless, we've also stated the last two weeks and many times throughout what. Good is understanding or knowledge without actually walking it out, without actually applying skill in living. Understanding, to use that Proverbs um, chapter and verse I just mentioned, again, 1622, should be a fountain of life. Spurgeon, regarding this understanding of the doctrine of election, if you recall, said that it should cause our hearts to dance for joy. Our hearts dance for joy when we walk out and apply what we know about Christ. Today, I want us to think deeply about this skill in living. Having laid out the doctrine for the past several two weeks. Now what? This morning we'll answer the question. What are some key fruits of sovereign election? Now of course. And only taking one message to examine these fruits. They will not be exhaustive. We could speak on numerous fruits that flow forth. From this understanding. That said today we'll focus on three. Three primary fruits. That I hope and pray. Will accomplish two key objectives. Number one. To enhance your love and passion. For this doctrine. And then number two. And even more importantly. To drive you. To even more skill in living. As a child of God, walking out what you believe and hold firmly to. With that said, let's stand and read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. One last time before we move on in our exposition. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3 through 6, reads... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. You may be seated. Our first fruit here this morning is number one, a life of assurance. Assurance. With that said, concerning this very, very important topic, which perhaps even some in this room here today struggle with. I just had a conversation with a dear friend this weekend who struggles with this topic. So I want to bring assurance and encouragement to you. Turn to John chapter 10 for our primary passage And we'll begin with the context of the parable of the good shepherd leading our way to the climax that supports this wonderful fruit of a life of assurance. Let me begin with reading verses 2 through 5 of John chapter 10. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Some of you are probably more than familiar with the famous author Dale Carnegie who wrote the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. He once wrote, and I quote, Remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Now, on some level, there is certainly truth in that statement. All of us desire to feel appreciated. Concerning this reality with Christ, the hymn writer described it as such. My name is graven on His hand. My name is written on his heart. Contextually, I don't want us to miss, as we work our way through this context, the significance of the shepherd calling his sheep by name. This is critical to see, especially given the personal and intimate nature of sovereign election, in which we've unpacked these past couple weeks, which we see throughout many pages of Scripture. And then here, the Son intimately calling by name the exact same ones. Additionally, notice, He leads them out. He goes before them. There's an initiating work of God that needs to take place in order for the sheep to follow. If we use the illustration, which is exactly what Christ is doing in this parable with human beings, we understand, similar to sheep, that they are not intelligent individuals, human beings. Animals, when it comes to sheep, capable of making their own choices in and of themselves, human beings. And then these words, a stranger, they simply will not follow. This word simply is inserted into the English translation. Rightfully so, in order to communicate what is a double negative here in the original language. The strongest negation in that language. It's as if to say they will never follow a stranger. Why is that the case? It's because they don't know his voice. They only know the shepherd's voice. The one who has called them. By name. Might they stumble? Might they fall? Of course they do. But ultimately they're the shepherd's possession. A possession never to be lost. Continuing with the context. Look down at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, as we just saw, does the shepherd need to call them first? Does the shepherd need to go forth in front of them? Of course he does. This is sovereign election. Although, what else do we see here? But man's responsibility. Jesus says, if anyone enters through me. Why can we have confidence in a life of assurance? It's because the shepherd, first and foremost, has called you by name and you have entered in. What's more, and this is key, the verse does not in any way communicate a potential salvation. Everything that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do are in perfect harmony and unity. When entering, you will be saved. Hallelujah. Now, that is powerful assurance indeed. Nevertheless, let none of us be naive. To the reality that in the flesh, there are many who still wrestle with assurance. I just illustrated a friend of mine, very close friend, in the conversation this past week and some of you even today may still wrestle with this fact. If that is you and your life truly reflects the fruit of the Spirit in evidence Of saving faith. I want you to ponder one monumental truth from this context. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Do you see it? The same Father who elected you and the same Son who called you by name know you in the same way that they know each other. How incredibly assuring and powerful is that reality! Think of the greatest relationship that you have here on this earth, whatever it is. The assurance, the confidence, the hope, the peace that you have in that natural relationship here on earth, whatever it may be, even that is light years apart from any comparison. To the relationship that exists between the perfect eternal Godhead. Beloved, let that be an anchor for your soul in times of doubt. He says, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Praise the Lord. Now, before we get to the climax, look down. I want to make one other key point in this context in verses 25 through 26. We read, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. One point that I want to address here coming off the heels of what we discussed last week. And it centers around a people who are not intimately foreknown before time began. We mentioned several passages last week in regards to that Genesis 3.15 Matthew 7.23 and John 17.9. That said, for this passage, what do we see here concerning why someone does not believe? The text states clearly, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He never knew them, even as he, Stated in Matthew seven twenty three, He only knows his sheep. That is intimately. You who he's called. By name. Those whom he predestined. Those whom he called. Those whom he justified. And those whom he glorifies. And then, for the climax, look at verses 27 through 29. Jesus continues on and states, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Hallelujah. This is perhaps the strongest passage in all of Scripture regarding The absolute truth of eternal security. Moreover, notice who these sheep are. They are the specific chosen ones who the Father gifted to the Son. What's more, we have another double negative here. It's translated for emphasis with the word never. Brother and sister, you will never perish. You will never be snatched out of his hands. Your life is engraved in his hands. You are eternally secure in Christ. In chapter 6, verse 37 of this. Gospel, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come. You see the puzzle fitting together perfectly and divinely. This is a perfect election. This is a perfect grace. And this is a perfect preservation of the saints, if you will. You know why we can live a life of assurance? It's because God is sovereign in all things. He is in control. Think about it for a moment. If we had a role to play in salvation or in keeping it, we'd surely find a way To lose it. And yet. God in his infinite. And rich. And lavishing mercy. Chose to save you. And to keep you. As a people. Intimately foreknown. By name. As a possession. For himself. According to the kind. Intention of his will. For this you can indeed live with hope as opposed to doubt. 19th century English pastor J.C. Ryle described this life of assurance as follows. And I quote, Assurance after all is no more than a full grown faith. A masculine faith, I love that, that grasps Christ promised with both hands. A faith that argues, like the good centurion, if the Lord speak the word only, wherefore then should I doubt? So, when faced with doubt, when faced with anxiety of the status of your soul, if your life reflects the fruit of the Spirit, you've truly become born again, friends, would you grasp with both hands John ten twenty seven through twenty nine? If the Lord speaks the words only. Is it enough? Dear friends, it certainly is. Well, in many respects, a life of an assurance is so encouraging internally, so much so that the Holy Spirit confirms that, as Romans 8 clearly entails. Nonetheless, the fruit of election also serves to produce a myriad of external responses. In our next fruit, the response protects us from pride and the fall that follows, and that's number two. A life of humility. A life of humility. So, for this Turn over to 1st Corinthians chapter 1 as our primary passage. Let's begin with the context. 1st Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at Paul's introductory comments. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul. Called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, similar to our discussion from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, don't miss this initiating calling, this initiating act of God Which begins the context leading up to our climax. Paul's apostleship was by the will of God. These saints in Corinth were saints by calling. Grace was and is always given first by God. And then before addressing the issue... Within this church, look at what he says, continuing this context in verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grammatically, here, behind the scenes, Paul is communicating that these saints received. This calling. They had nothing to do with this calling. God and His faithfulness was the first cause of their salvation. All of this specific context was critical in providing a foundation in order for Him to tackle the division that He mentions. In verse 10, we see what is behind this division in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. These men, as he's referring to them, we see what they say. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Unfortunately for many, they had become too man centered, too obsessed with the messenger rather than the message or Christ himself. We're no different. When we become too man centered, pride is not far behind. And yet, as he continues to lay this groundwork, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's he doing here? He's continuing to lay brick upon brick upon this previous contextual foundation, a foundation that will ultimately provide a safeguard against this prideful division within the church. It's not about the power of man or the intelligence of man. It's about the power of God. All of this continuing to challenge their pride and self What's more, continuing to challenge them to live a life of humility. And then, in verses 23 and 24, he goes on to say, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Once again, continuing to restructure their realignment, if you will. This is a squashing of any attempt to trust in the power or the intellect Or the ability of man. It's all about. The grace of God. A grace which is calling men. And saving men. Apart from the foolishness. Of men. It's as if this whole time. He's setting the stage. And getting ready to lower The boom. A boom that ultimately destroys any notion of boasting in man. It's like a rampart, we might say, a fortress against prideful division. Look with me at verses 26 through 31 for this rampart. This fortress, this climax, which enables us to live with humility, to understand the fruit of humility because of our calling by God. Verses twenty six through thirty one read. For consider your calling, brethren. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. And the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts Boasts in the Lord. Beloved, why does sovereign election produce a life of humility? Given all of this context, God's word speaks directly to you in the same way that it did to the church at Corinth. Consider your calling, brethren, soldiers for Christ. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You see, first century culture in many respects is no different than what we struggle with in our culture We like to glory in self. We like to feel confident in self. Even in matters of theology, we like to think like we're in control. We like to think that we're capable in and of ourselves of making right choices. And yet, in sledgehammer fashion, Paul destroys this prideful boast. Look at verse 30 again. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's all of God. We've seen this throughout. Here He specifies salvation, wisdom, sanctification, righteousness, and your redemption. They're all received by his doing. So, why was this important to address for the prideful division within the church at Corinth? First off, boasting inevitably leads to feelings of superiority. We saw this in verse 12. As for us, remember our discussion from last week concerning the argument that God looks down the corridor of time and makes his choice of election based upon man's choice. Friends, there's no getting around the fact that this creates, even if it's inadvertent. In this equation, Man can boast. Be that as it may. Verse 31 provides the ultimate climactic reason. And protection against prideful division. When he says so that just as it is written. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Amen? When we understand sovereign election, how can we not, in all areas of life, live with humility? In chapter 4 of this letter, Paul says, what have we received that was not given to us first? In Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Make a note. You could reference it later. We won't turn there. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. Paul describes this response to sovereign election as such. So. As those who have been chosen of God. Holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion. Kindness. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Friends, that is certainly a a fruit worth pursuing. A fruit that will make our hearts dance for joy. What's more, because humility is not just internal, but external, counting others as more significant than yourselves, it will also lead to the benefit of the church as a whole. So, regarding these fruits, I certainly would not want to give the impression that one is more important than the other. Nonetheless, in this next fruit, Something is amiss if we're not concerned with it. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. In his last words, he commanded us to go forth and make disciples. That said... As I set the stage for this final fruit, we should be a people concerned for evangelism. Given that priority, I want to give you a brief but oh so powerful shot of confidence concerning this in our third and final fruit. And that is a life of confidence. For our passage, turn back to John chapter 6. Don't you love the providence of God? This passage in John chapter 6 is where God just orchestrated even our scripture reading to be today. Following the context in this chapter of the people demanding a sign from Christ in order to demonstrate His authority. I want to start with verses 35 and 36 of John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me and yet you do not believe. Two quick points here on these two verses. First, this is undoubtedly the power of God on display with a direct Reference to his deity and oneness in Christ with the first of seven I am statements attributed to himself in the Gospel of John. Secondly, don't miss the human responsibility on display again. Scripture never shies away from these two Dual truths. God is absolutely 100% sovereign in all things. Yet man is responsible. There's tension in this. Yet, who can know the mind of God? As Paul states in Romans chapter 11... And then, look at the climax here in verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. I want to make a couple last comments here before driving this shot of confidence home. First of all, all that the father gives me is clearly a reference to the elect What's more, in his perfect plan, he says, All that have been given will come, i.e., sovereignty of God. Moreover, the one who comes, i.e., man's responsibility, he will never cast out. In verse 28, We see the unity of the Godhead on display and that Christ has come not to do His will, but the will of the one who sent Him. More on that as we work our way through verses 7 through 10, all to say that there is perfect harmony and unity always in the Trinity. To say that the Father and the Son or the Spirit are on different pages, so to speak, cannot be. And then finally, in verse 39, we see ultimate confidence in the statement, All that he has given to me, I will lose nothing. Let's sum it up this way a man, once again, is always responsible. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Nevertheless, beloved, let us never forget that God is not a man that he should lie. There are a specific people whom the Father elected and gifted to the Son And in perfect harmony, the Son has come to fulfill the will of the Father. Those in whom He predestined to adoption as sons. According to the kind intention of His will. Why can we live with confidence in evangelism? My focus for this last fruit, evangelism. We could think of many other topics of confidence in Christian living because of this doctrine. It's because we are simply means in this eternal plan. All that the Father gives will come. Now let me close in this way. The question in light of such a glorious and infinite and difficult topic such as this is at times posed. If, which he has, God has elected before time began, a certain people according to His will, according to His kind intention, and that those people will come. Why should I be concerned with evangelism? There's a simple answer to that question it's because we've been commanded to do so. We don't know who the elect are, it's within the infinite. And sovereign mind of God. We don't know how all of those details play out. As Charles Spurgeon once said, people are not walking around with a big E on their back, so to speak. This is why we proclaim the gospel indiscriminately to the whole of creation, calling men and women turn from your sin, brother. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Not to mention, because we know that God, by His power, will perfectly draw all of those in whom He has elected, we can have confidence in evangelism like no other It's not about our eloquent or winsome gospel presentation. It's not about having all of the perfect apologetic answers to every question or concern that the skeptic has. It's certainly not about the dead sinner's ability to either receive or accept or reject the message. We just need in obedience to go forth and communicate the simple truths of the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Turn. Trust in Christ. God's word will not return void. Unfortunately, according to His divine decree, in some instances it will be an aroma of death unto death. And what have we laid out in previous weeks? Who among us is worthy of an aroma of life unto life? But God who is rich in mercy, chose to bestow sovereign grace upon you and draw you. He will perfectly accomplish everything that He has decreed to be from the beginning to the end. And what He began in you He will bring to completion. That said, this is a shot of confidence like no other when we consider this blessed privilege to go forth and proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a lost and not dying world, dead world. But God shines light And opens blind eyes. And he uses you brother. He uses you sister. To proclaim the good news of Jesus. And he will bring it to pass. For this. We can go forward with confidence. And simply communicate the gospel. To all. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the assurance that You give us through Your Word and the Spirit that indwells us. That we are children of God in which we can cry, Abba, Father. We thank You, Lord, that You have demonstrated the ultimate example and model of humility. In counting others as more significant than yourself, the God man who humbled yourself to death. Oh God, because of this example, might we go forward in a spirit of humility? Because of the unbelievably encouraging understanding of election. Might we go forward in a spirit of grace and might we go forward with passion and exuberance and confidence in a gospel that will accomplish what you determined it to be. We are living examples of that. Those of us who ran our hell-bound race and yet you chose us. In the precious and mighty name of our warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.